0: Welcome to Beyond Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Petrellis, and we are so excited for today's episode. You know, usually we're out here, we're interviewing coaches and talking to coaches and have them on the podcast, but we have a treat. Former Major League Baseball player today, someone who I had the, you know, the pleasure of talking to on the phone over this weekend and just, I, I just can't wait to have this guest on the podcast. I think they're going to be so much fun and add so much insight to, you know, being a professional athlete. Uh, is the current founder and CEO of Rhode Island uh, Center of Freedom and Prosperity? Uh, former Major League Baseball outfielder, first baseman, designated hitter, played for the Montreal Expos from 1982 to 1984, the Minnesota Twins in 1985, and, you know, my hometown, Boston Red Sox, in 1986. So pretty fun, pretty, pretty good time period to play for the Red Sox as well. And is the all-time batting average leader in Ivy League school history. Um, at 415 so uh, an incredible athlete incredible person and someone we're super excited to have on here today so again former uh, major league baseball player mike stenhouse
1: hey great to be with you and and all your millions of fans anthony
0: yeah after this episode i'm (laughs) i'm hoping that i'm hoping that so we'll see (laughs) we'll see um but you know again thank you for coming on the show today we're so excited to have you um, and just how I typically start off with a lot of guests, and I'll just ask you a similar question, is really just your start into baseball. What I found is so unique that you're a son of a Major League Baseball player yourself. Uh, your dad was, uh, what I looked up, was a knuckleball pitcher, correct? Well, he had a special. he wasn't a knuckleball pitcher, but he had a specialty
1: pitch called a knuckle curveball.
0: Gotcha. Okay, perfect. So again, you know, first of its kind or one of its first of its kind. So talk yeah. about. I mean, being a son whose dad's a major league baseball player. I mean, just talk about the love and passion that you have for the game of baseball.
1: Well, and let me first thank you. Uh, you know, I don't get a chance to talk baseball too much anymore. My, I think my my kids and my wife have have all heard enough of it over the years. So <laughs> there's nobody to talk baseball to anymore. So this is a thrill for me as well to relive some memories but you know I grew up I was born in uh, Pueblo Colorado my dad was uh, when I was uh, one month from or a few weeks from being born my mother had a drive from Texas to Colorado through the Rockies and all that because my dad got reassigned from one class A league to another league they wouldn't do that today of course with with a pregnant wife but back then they were Pretty crude about that stuff. So my mom, at eight and a half pre- months pregnant, had to drive three or four days from Texas to Colorado. I was born when my father was away on a road trip. Uh, the day after I was born as, as a minor leaguer, he pitched a no-hitter in the minor league. So, so that's, that was the thrill I gave him, <laughs> I guess. Hey. But um, listen, I grew up I grew up at Major League ballparks. So I probably went to my first game at one week old and, uh, you know, in, in the stands. And um, I, I remember some of my dad's professional career, very little of it when he was with the Washington Senators. And, you know, my dad wasn't just a um, big league player. He, he, he was an all-star pitcher his rookie year. And, he, in fact, here's a great trivia question. My dad, Dave Stenhouse, was the first – get this – the first rookie pitcher ever to start a Major League All-Star game. Wow. You would have uh, Fernando, uh, Mark Fidrich be next, then Fernando Valenzuela – and then a guy named Jack Armstrong with the Reds. And I don't know that anybody else has done that since, but my dad was the first. So I grew up around the game. It was natural to me. My dad was a pitcher, but he knew enough about hitting to turn me into a pretty good hitter. And then the rest I, I developed on my own. So listen, it's, um, it wasn't even a second thought that if I had any talent, I would try to pursue a big league career.
0: I mean, that's amazing. And what I find so amazing about it, too, is just I've had a lot of coaches on here that, like, you know, their dads grew up as, like, head coaches, and then they've obviously become head coaches. So it's really cool to see. I mean, for all intents and purposes, you're wearing dad's jersey to, to school, his hat, his gear. I mean, you must have been awesome at show-and-tell time in school. Like, your dad being the speaker must have been, like, you know, the guy that everybody wanted to get in there. So that, you know, that's I don't awesome.
1: know that that ever happened. You know, he was out, he was out of the game – By the time I was really in, um, second grade, I finished second grade in Hawaii where he was, uh, was triple, that was triple a for the Washington senators in 1965. And, uh, so we left as soon as the season started in April, our family packed up and we, and I finished April, May, and June, and then we spent the summer in school. I finished April, May, and June, and then we spent the summer in Honolulu, uh, that year. So, um, but that was about it. I I you know, I don't know that he ever came in for show and tell. I'm gonna ask him about, about that. It's,
0: it's a good point. That's so funny. Yeah. I, I, I would. I bring him in. I bring him in like every every momentous thing there was, I bring him in. Um, so obviously you you mentioned it, right? That you know, you knew in life that if you had that talent in baseball, that, that was what you wanted to pursue. And obviously, seeing your father play, that's you know, you wanna you a lot of so many people just wanna be like their father and you had a great man to look up to. Talk about that that decision making like okay you're a pretty good player you're a real good player in high school now you got colleges doing everything to possibly get you to come there i mean i you know some of the research i did i know arizona state was a big school uh that was reaching out to you but i know you chose harvard i mean and Harvard's Harvard. You know, if you're from around here, you know, Harvard is, is the school, you know? So it obviously shows the talent that you have from an athletic standpoint, but also the mind and the intelligence that you have. So maybe for our audience a little bit, talk about being a young high school kid and that decision-making of, you know, you chose Harvard and I'm sure there were a lot of other places, but what just made you kind of make that decision that Harvard was the right place for you?
1: Well, you focused on a really important decision I made and, um, it wasn't evidence. You know, I was very, very thin. You'd never know it now. <laughs> they asked me, how long ago did you play? I say about 45 pounds ago, <laughs> but uh, I don't even measure it in years anymore. But anyway, I was very, very thin as a young boy and, and as a young teenager. So I, while I was a good player, I did you know, I didn't have that super power and pop that, you know, that the real studs in little league and whatnot had even in senior little league. But my senior year in high school, you know, I hit, like, 580 or something, and it caught the – my dad, of course, having played – now, my dad, you talk about coaches. My dad coached at Rhode Island College for 10 years in the 70s. He coached at Brown University, the head coach for both in the 80s. Good thing he was at Brown while I was at Harvard in the 70s because we would have just whooped his butt, you know, <laughs> like we did, Harvard over Brown. But – but um but it wasn't really until, and he knew all the scouts in the area, of course, being a former player, they're all former pretty much colleagues and teammates or people he played against. And of course, they were scouting the Brown or the Rhode Island College kids. So a few few scouts inquired if, if, if it would be worth drafting me after my high school year. But again, I wasn't like that super impressive, admittedly, at that point. I was good. I was on that track but I hadn't arrived yet you know fully I would the next year and um so he put the word out don't draft him he's got an offer from from Harvard he's going to go there unless you're going to draft him in the first round and give him a million dollars which they weren't going to do don't draft him so I was a hell of a student because of my parents I mean you know they gave me some good genes and they made me some good study habits I, I never expected to go to Harvard Anthony um um, I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't, I didn't have any favorite. Yes, you're right. I got recruited by Arizona, not Arizona State. Okay. Um, um, uh, Providence College offered me a full scholarship. Uh, South Carolina, where Bobby Richardson was the coach, contacted me. Funny thing is, a lot of schools in the Ivy League recruited me for basketball. I was an all state basketball player too in high school. And. Um, Dartmouth recruited me only for basketball. Uh, Yale recruited me only for basketball. Brown recruited me for baseball and basketball. And Harvard was the only one that got it right and recruited me for just baseball. Because <laughs> I knew I wasn't gonna have a pro basketball career. So um, so that was part of it. And I might've got a call from Satch Sanders, Anthony. Satch Sanders called. He was the basketball coach at Harvard at the time. And now if you saw his piece in the um, Boston Globe over the weekend, his tribute to Elgin Baylor. If you oh, haven't no. seen it yet, I, I, you should read it. It was a real tribute. That was his contemporary, of course. And he, he called him maybe the greatest all-around player ever. But Satch was a very intelligent, great guy. He called me up and in that deep voice he had. So I understand you're being recruited for baseball and you'd like to try to play basketball. Can't promise everything, but I'll give you a shot to play. And he did. And I made the varsity and I played freshman, which you only could do your freshman year at, at the time at Harvard. And I played varsity by sophomore year. Then I gave it up to concentrate on baseball. So, so Harvard, once I was accepted and once they were the only school to recruit me properly, <laughs> uh, that decision was easy. Plus I want, I need uh, being a coming from a Italian mother, I needed to get a little way from home, just a little bit away, you know. Yeah. Brown, Brown University, which was my second choice, was just too close to home.
0: Well, yeah, a little way from home, just enough to get some good food. Good food. And get some laundry get some done.
1: Laundry every now and right. then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's exactly it. So, you know, you played three seasons at Harvard. I just want to statistically go over a few numbers there and talk about what we mentioned at the top of the podcast, which is your Ivy League record that you have, but you played from 77 to 97. I mean, from 1977 to 1979, two time um, Ivy League All-Star and All-American uh, your freshman year, you hit four seventy-five, which was the second-best batting average in, in NCAA Division One at that time, that time period of the year. Uh, and you had the best, like I said, overall batting average over uh, a tenure. Um, so you had a pretty successful career at Harvard. Um, and I know that also led to you playing in the Cape League, and we'll talk about the Cape League numbers in a minute. But just talk about as a collegiate athlete, you, you know – athletes always like you know they think to themselves did they make the right choice you have all these different schools recruiting you did I make the right choice I mean if you obviously statistically you did right but you know just talk about the overall you made that decision you're at Harvard just your playing time at Harvard a little bit and maybe how that helped you mature to become a better baseball player
1: yeah sure um as I mentioned a little while ago it was that freshman year I mean I finished I think I went something like 20 for my last 30 and boosted my average up to that 475. And, and with some, with a lot of power and with a bunch of RBIs and, and that was really when I knew I was on the track. That's when I really started getting the attention of the scouts. That's when the Cape league came calling. There weren't many freshmen that played in the Cape Cod baseball league then. um, But, but I was recruited and I went to play for Chatham, which I played for, for three years. But but our freshman team, uh, I mean our Harvard team, when when a certain pitcher started, one of our freshman pitchers, we had eight of our nine starters, were freshmen. That recruiting class was incredible we had at Harvard, and and Harvard, uh, unlike today, it, it, you know don't forget. I, so I'm getting recruited in '76, right, to go there that fall, but. In 74 and 72, that team went to the College World Series. Wow. In fact, I don't know which year, but one of those two years, they beat USC, uh, Freddie Lynn's USC team in the first round. So Harvard had a, was the second-ranked baseball program in New England. So the, the opportunity to get a great education and to play top-notch Divi- Division One baseball was, uh, was ended up really being a no-brainer. I was going to go to an Ivy League school. You know, even though I had full, full-ride scholarships from, uh, from some non-Ivy League schools, uh, my parents, you know, sat with me and said, listen, it's worth it to us to, to fund you for that kind of education and, and still get that level of ball that can keep your career hopes alive. And, and it did. And it was fine. And the competition was great. Of course, the competition was even better in the Cape Cod League where I really honed my skills. And I, and I think I even shined better in the Cape Cod League than I did even at Harvard. I seemed to do better at that point in my career against the better competition.
0: Yeah, and, and you know we'll, we'll jump into those numbers in the Cape. And that's what I found amazing about your collegiate career. It just seemed like every year you were doing better or doing something different, and your statistics were really popping out. Now, when you get chose for the Cape League, I mean, how does that work? I mean, I've gone down and seen a bunch of Cape baseball games before, and I know it's the best of the most elite, college baseball players there are, but how does that process work? Maybe just for the audience out there, Did they just reach out to you, call you. Yeah, and-
1: it's strictly word of mouth and, and, re, you know, old fashioned college recruiting, you know, forget AAU wasn't uh, really even, there was no such thing. I don't think is AAU baseball back then. If it was, it might've been just for little tots, but not like it is now where if you don't play, AAU ball, you don't get noticed by scouts. You don't get noticed by colleges. You don't get noticed by summer leagues. I mean, you don't get noticed by anybody pretty much if you don't play AAU ball. That was not the way it was when, when I played. So um, I'm trying to remember how, how it happened exactly. I think an assistant coach at the Cape at that Chatham team knew somebody in, in the new England. Um because the head coach was from, um, Uppsala college, uh, Uppsala or Uppsala, whoever you say it in, in New York. But, but the assistant coach was from New England and he had heard, of, he heard about my freshman year and he said, you know, and then when they heard about you know with my dad's pedigree and all that, my pedigree because of my dad. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's bring him in. Yeah. yeah so I- it, it's all, it's all word of mouth and, you know, references and referrals.
0: I wondered about that, you know, because like you said, it is the best of the best when it comes to collegiate baseball, you know, baseball in the United States for all intents and purposes. And it's, it's a cool league. It's a cool thing. I love watching it. The atmosphere is awesome. Um, And you did well there. I mean, just looking at some of your numbers here uh, you know, you were, first of all, you were inducted into the, into the hall of fame. Uh, You were the, you were inducted into the Cape Cod league hall of fame, which I find absolutely amazing in itself. Um, but you also had some tremendous numbers. You batted 426 in 90 in 78 before you got injured, you had six home runs in 13 games. Uh, you were league all-star in 1979. As I said, in 2008, you were inducted into the Cape Cod baseball league uh, hall of fame. And what I found really great was we mentioned earlier about your batting average as well. So then I looked up some premier uh, baseball players over the years that have gone to Ivy league schools, just to give people an, idea of the audience of some of the people that pass a play Major League Baseball and currently play Major League Baseball that are Ivy League guys that, you know, you hold this record over, which I think is amazing. Mo Berg, which I love his book. I I, yeah. I think that's unbelievable. Lou Gehrig, Mark DeRosa, Bill Allman was the first ever Ivy League player taken number one overall. Yeah.
1: Good friend of mine, Bill Allman, yeah.
0: Yeah, and and then Kyle Hendricks that, you know, currently plays in baseball now. So, you know, just a few names out there that are pretty recognizable household names when it comes to the game of baseball, and you hold that distinct record. I think that you should wield that, wear that as like a, a shield of armor. I think that's unbelievable.
1: You know, I didn't even know it till about – I don't know what. five years ago, I I um, w- went to a reunion event at Harvard with you know just a regular thirty-fifth or whatever hell reunion it was, and um, and and I went to visit the athletic facility, and immediately they, they, any athlete that walked in they. Hey, we got this new encyclopedia of, or these new two-volume you know, history of Harvard sports that we're looking for all alumni to buy. So I bought it, and I'm flipping through, and there's baseball, and, and all of a sudden, there's this line in there. Sennos, who was the all-time batting average leader in Ivy League history, I'm like, what? I didn't know that. <laughs> and I went back, I called the guy, I said, Is this true? <laughs> he goes, Yeah, it's true. It's oh, pretty cool. Yeah. So, so anyway, yeah, I mean, listen, I had a hell, as it turned out, my junior year was my worst year. I had my lowest batting average. I had a very strange, you know, for anyone who, who, who's played ball, I had a very strange year. Uh, my swing, for some reason, I must have had a really big uppercut. I, I couldn't get, I don't, you know, I hit. Eight home runs in like 22 games my freshman year. I hit nine home runs in maybe 30 games my junior year, but I had more RBIs and things, more production. And then my junior year, I only hit one home run and I couldn't get any backspin on the ball. I was hitting everything tops. I was killing the ball, but it would topspin. I hit, I think I, I hit more doubles and triples that year than I hit in any other year, but I just couldn't get any loft. And I think that was the reason I was still a first round draft pick late in the first round. But I think if I had had a better year, uh, Anthony, I would have been, I would have joined Billy Allman as the number one pick. The Seattle Mariners almost took me number one anyway. Uh, and they decided to go with some high school kid named True True Chambers. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Wow. But uh, and he, he panned out to be nothing. And um, so, so, uh, but it was weird that my junior year is my weakest year, but what a great experience. The Cape league, was terrific because you got to play with players from other parts of the country. Yeah. We play with a guy named Bubba McBrain from, uh, you know, Louisiana state or something, Gulf coast community college, you know, so all these Southern guys and, you know, and those guys from California. I mean, you would play against them before, but I, you know, you're, you're playing with and living with these guys. And it, it was really cool to meet these players from different parts of the country.
0: Yeah, and, and that's what's like so fascinating. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, it is going against the best of the best, right? So obviously, that's going to bring out the best in your game. And as you're pursuing your dream and your passion, you know, Major League scouts were watching. And they see you playing well against some of the best competition in the country and arguably maybe at the world at that time. And yeah, it, it obviously paid dividends in, in where you were drafted. So, you know, I want to talk about that because when I did my homework a little bit, I noticed that you were drafted back-to-back years two separate times. So I want to talk about the Oakland A's first. So you were drafted in seven. 1978 1978 um 26th overall pick and again correct me if i'm wrong i could be wrong on some of the research i did here but you were offered a when you got offered now i think first rounder i mean in any sport period a first round is a first rounder i mean that's somebody who has talent and you know they're looking to maybe build a team around or a piece to build a team around um and you were you were offered like twelve thousand dollars as like signing a contract and i don't know if that's a lot of money in baseball then so i don't mean to sound insulting if i do no. but i just found it really interesting because then in the following year you signed for like more than triple that amount of money um so it seemed really low to me and then you ended up deciding to go back into baseball and not take the draft so i just was wondering if you could talk about that experience a little bit and kind of how it went down so um Charlie Finley, the owner
1: of the Oakland A's, after he had all those world championship seasons in the early and mid-70s with Reggie Jackson and Raleigh Fingers and Catfish Hunter and Vita Blue and all that. In fact, that was my favorite team. I loved, loved the Oakland A's at the time. Um, Reggie Jackson became one of my, maybe my favorite contemporary player. Um, but he, uh, once free agency hit in the late 70s, he said, I'm not going to have any part of that. I'm not paying players that much. Um, we don't draw that many fans here in Oakland, even when we're winning. And uh, I'm going to just start selling off all the players. And he did. So he was in. He wasn't in acquisition and building a championship team mode anywhere anymore. He was in getting rid of salaries. He he didn't want to pay anybody anything. Pretty you know, relatively to play. So he didn't even have a. He didn't even have uh, scouts who scouted me in the re, He didn't have anybody in the East Coast to, to scout amateur baseball. Uh, but the Major Leagues has something called the Major League Scouting Bureau that compiles its own notes on players. So he drafted me late in the first round, just based solely on the notes from the Major League Baseball Scouting Bureau. Neither he or anyone in his organization ever saw me play. Um, and again, he was in selling mode, not buying mode. So so most first round picks then, I mean, it's not like today with, with millions of dollars back then we're, we're, we're getting six figures, maybe late first round picks. Were getting, you getting know, a little under six figures, but probably, you know, 70, 80, 90,000. But he offered me, like you said, the twelve five or something like that. And, and it wasn't just about the money, but it was the whole attitude that, you know, that the, the, it was just a transaction. They didn't really care about me. He made a last ditch effort and said, listen, I'll, I can't offer you more money, but I can offer you – I'll call you up to the big league roster at the end of the season. I said, wow, well, what's it all about, about getting to the big leagues, right? So, I said, "Um, all right, put it in writing, and I'll sign. He goes, well, I can't put it in writing. Yeah. And we said, well, it's the only reason I'm signing. It has to be guaranteed. So, I can't do that. So, we said, okay, thanks, but no thanks. And I went – and. During this time, I was playing ball in the Cape League, and I just continued to play. In fact, after I agreed to, to take the offer, my all my teammates took me out and really got me smashed that night, and then all for naught because I ended up staying there. Uh, so yeah. I, I remember that night, yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's it. So to me, because then the following year in 80, you got drafted by the Expos, and you were oh, yeah. fourth overall. So not only were you still drafted in the first round, from all intents and purposes you're now a top 5 pick and i'm sure financially that is a little bit more than say what it would have been if you got drafted
1: well a 26. little bit different uh it it's a, it's a secondary phase they don't do it anymore they used to, so it was it was for all the players who either weren't eligible in june or players in my case cuz we actually filed a complaint with the commissioner's office and said listen Charlie Finley and the Oakland A's did not negotiate in good faith with me. They offered me an ultimatum. They lied to me about this, you know, roster thing. I really wanted to play pro ball. I wanted to get the full year in the next year, you know, spring training and the whole deal. And even though I would have loved to have, you know, joined my classmates and played another year at Harvard, it was, you know, at that point in my career, I wanted to play pro ball. And, um, So we asked for an exemption to be eligible for the January draft, because normally if you're drafted after your junior year and you don't sign, you're not eligible to be drafted again until the following June of your senior year. But we asked for an exemption, and we received one. They agreed. Finley is, you know, Finley is Finley. We agree with you. We didn't negotiate good faith. So we'll make you eligible for the January draft, the secondary phase, what they used to call it. And that's when the and so it's, it's a much smaller pool of players. So getting drafted fourth in the first round isn't nearly the status of getting fourth in the first round of the June draft. But still, the Expos drafted me. And, and here's the irony here, Anthony. I probably would have been better off signing with the Oakland A's Wow. Because they had no talent. They were they sold everybody. With the Montreal Expos, I'm behind Andre Dawson, Tim Raines, Al Oliver, Pete Rose, Warren Cromartie, Ellis Valentine, Terry Francona. I had, And as it turned out, I had no place to play. No matter how good a career, which we'll talk about shortly, I had in the minor leagues, I couldn't get playing time. The competition, that team was so good. That organization was so strong, I, I, I didn't get – what I felt was my deserved shot at the big leagues with Oakland, that shot surely would have come. Now we couldn't have known that at the time, but looking back in hindsight, it's easy. I I absolutely feel I would have been better off signing with Oakland.
0: Yeah. Just from like a talent perspective, like you yep. said, what you were playing behind yep. and some of those guys, you know, they weren't too old in that at that point. Some of those guys were, you oh, know, no. younger guys in their careers that were very Brains good players. Greens
1: was, was actually probably younger than me. He signed out of high school, but he was, you know, he might have even been younger than me. Dawson wasn't much older. Yeah. Yeah, Terry Francona was, was my age, um, you know, so –
0: it's interesting right um and and you mentioned the minor league so i kind of you know i want to talk about that i know we jumped into you getting drafted but obviously a lot of times like most guys that get drafted you know in baseball they do There's very few that kind of jump right into the majors most of them are starting their career in the minors and building their way up i mean your minor league career was a tremendous success um but just maybe for the audience a little bit talk about the grind of playing in the minor leagues because it's not you know i mean even today playing in the minor leagues it's it's a grind i mean you're not getting getting the luxury life that, you know, people (laughs) would think that baseball athletes are getting. I mean, you're on buses, probably driving all over the place, playing a million baseball games, and I'm sure it was an exhausting life, but you seem to balance it pretty well because you had a great minor league career. So, you know, just talk about your minor league career, what you maybe learned as a baseball player to maybe get better or just maybe a mental aspect of the game that didn't exist before.
1: Well, you hit the key word, uh, learn, Um, unlike any other sport. You just think about it. You know, hockey has one level often of minor leagues to the NHL, but often guys go right from college, right, to become very good players in the NHL. That almost never happens in baseball, ever. The learning process, even for the the difference in talent and skills and, and acquired skills, you know, versus natural skills and strength, uh, that, that often you don't develop till, till after you're, you've graduated college. Well, certainly that was my case. You know, I was, you know, I was 180 pounds leaving college ended up playing pro ball, you know, 195 and I needed, you know, if I was, I was a, you know, if you can picture, I was a left-handed hitter, kind of power type hitter um, uh, but a good average hitter. And, and as we'll probably talk about a very good disciplined hitter. I, I you know very patient, but, but, you know, you had to learn. So, so you had to start low at single A ball, work your way up. And um, from a financial point of view, even though I, I was fortunate enough to have a little bit of a signing bonus, it wasn't enough to make me rich. It was enough to uh, buy myself a car and put some money in the bank. That was about it. You know, put a little money in the bank. wasn't much. But our, our, our monthly salary was $600 a month. Wow. For only the five months of the minor league season, so wow. picture that. Right, nice. <laughs> you got to pay your rent, you got to eat, you got to tip the clubhouse guys uh, when you go on the road. We used to get like uh, maybe eight dollars a day meal money if we were lucky. I, that might even been high when we go on the road. I mean, I can remember going to Fort Myers, which was a nothing town in 1980 where the Royals were. And, and there was, a, I mean, the, all the town was, was a ballpark, a hotel and a Walgreens across the street. And I used to go by, I used to go over to the Walgreens late morning and I'd buy two or three Walgreens subs from like their, um, they used to have sort of like a deli kind of pre-made, pre-made sandwiches. That was the best way I could spend my money and get the most to eat. And then I because I had to save a buck to tip the clubhouse kid, you know, which was tradition every day. So of my eight bucks a day, you know, so the other seven was for a, a soda and maybe three subs or something like that, you know, that you'd eat before the game. And then you'd save one in your room, even though it got warm uh, after the game, you know, but that was the minor league
0: life, you know. Uh, <laughs> So, um, that's, and that's, what's crazy to me, right? Because most people think professional athletes get drafted, you know, you think money, you think luxury, you think comfort, and then you're hearing this and you're like, yeah, you know, these Walgreens sandwiches were amazing. And, you know, and, and it's important, I think, to hear perspective. I mean, I'm sure it's the same in the game somewhat today, but obviously they have a lot more, you know, things that they get, but back then baseball was a grind, you know, and working your way up to the major leagues was not only a process on the field, but also living life off the field yeah. was is not easy.
1: Well, going away to college and uh, playing in the Cape League and meeting those guys from across the nation. And, of course, traveling as a youngster with my dad to some extent, you know, kind of wasn't all that new to me. And just the whole baseball, like I mentioned right off the top, just the whole idea of me playing pro ball was not a, was not a big thing. It's something I grew up with, right, from day, day one of my life. But I did see, you know, for others, Anthony – where that lifestyle uh, was uh, destroyed, people financially and um, uh, socially. I'll say um, financially. You know, one thing people don't take in mind. You know, you've got a picture. A lot of these kids, and I call them kids. And I remember calling home my dad maybe after a month or two, in a ball, almost crying after after some of my friends were released. Um, you know, because that's baseball. It's a tough sport. You know, you don't perform, you're out. Now, the, now this one guy that got released, you know, he, he had signed after high school. He was my age, so he had been four years in the minor league, still, still at the A-ball level. Missed out on his college career because he signed after high school. He was married. His wife w- missed out on her ability to get a college education as well because she's following him around uh they've got kids they get they're all they're living on no bonus they're living on that six hundred dollars a month no money in the bank no job prospects no training no education and now four years of your career is gone and and you go home i mean this guy was crying his eyeballs out what am i going to do now what what am i going to do now And he he had no hope. I don't even know how
0: it turned out for him, but it's cruel. When you look at that, do you say to yourself when that process was going on, like, man, I'm glad I went to Harvard, at least went to college and and getting a degree. And I'm sure that ran through your mind a lot as you saw some of your close friends or people that you knew that were getting cut and then being like, I don't know what life's going to bring me next. I've been dedicated to this for X amount of years.
1: Well, of course, and that's why, you know, that decision to go to Harvard, to get the best of both to get with a, you know, top-notch Division One school and to get a quality education, top-notch education, you know, was a was two-for-one no-brainer deal, you know, I mean, if you think about it, right? Yeah. Um, just to have that backup. But, you know, the funny thing is the Harvard, the Harvard background actually worked against me in pro ball. Uh, not, not with the players, but a lot of the coaches were old school. Yeah. Not only did they not like college players who were smarter than them, because a lot of these coaches never went to college. Uh, but, they, yes, but but an Ivy League guy, especially a Harvard guy, you know, they, they just figured I was some kind of spoiled, stuck-up brat who, who, who over like who didn't give a shit about baseball. She so was my French there. I had yeah. one coach say that to me. Listen, I know you went to Harvard. You probably don't care if you're going to have a big league career. Uh, because you have you could, you have an education and opportunities you could fall back as timeout,
0: timeout, yeah, yeah. timeout.
1: With my dad, with all the work I put in, I want a goddamn big league career as much as anybody else out here on that field. So don't you ever think otherwise, right? Right? And don't ever. So it worked against me in, in many in in certain instances. For, yeah. uh, the Harvard education, but. You know, in the end, and now, you know, it was obviously the right decision. to make. Right.
0: I mean, you look at that and be like, oh, I can't believe that guy said that to me. And yeah. it's now, the-
1: socially, socially, as, as I was saying, you know, a lot of yeah. guys couldn't handle the freedom. Uh, maybe they had a little money from a signing bonus. And maybe that went right into the bottle of booze.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, maybe that went into some cocaine. Yeah. Uh, maybe it went into entertaining girls. Yeah. Um, But socially, minor league baseball life, I saw literally destroyed people.
0: Yeah. And that's the maturity aspect of it. Right. I mean, for you, you mentioned again, going to Harvard, playing in the Cape League, really kind of always surrounding yourself with people that had similar goals to you and working hard to get there, where maybe some guys have always just been good at it and didn't have that discipline and, you know, have that self-management outside the game a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's it's maturity, not just socially, uh, for sure, as you just mentioned, Anthony, but um, also on the field. You know, one thing, again, I want to go back to that word you use, learn. You didn't need to have an education in college to be successful and to develop your skills to the point where you could reach the big leagues, maybe. Yeah. But you needed to know how to learn. And so many guys didn't, there were so many better athletes than me, faster, bigger, stronger, but who never really improved, never, never the mental discipline, the, uh, you know, re- remembering lessons, you know, keeping your, keeping your head, you know, keeping a level head rather than getting, you know, the ups and downs of emotions. You know, all those, you know, like you said, all those disciplines were important, but n- Learning how to learn was vi- is vital because baseball, you, ha- you can't just go from college or high school to the big leagues. You, you've got to go through a, a minimum two years, probably three or four year process to, 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 to learn those acquired skills before you can be big league ready. And so many players just couldn't do it for whatever reason.
0: Yeah. I mean, you hear, I mean, you hear it in all sports. I mean, the lifestyle sometimes is the downfall of the great athletes, like you said, because they just don't know how to manage it or deal with it. Now let's talk about you. You, you put that grind into the minor league for a few years. You know, you were a heavily regarded, you know, minor league baseball player. I mean, Peter Gammons came out and said that he thought you were one of the best, you know, out out there. Um, Talk about your first big league call up. I mean, I mean, there's things you remember in life of where you are and what you were doing when something happened. I mean, that has to be one of those moments when you got your first major league call-up. I mean, talk about the emotions that run through you, knowing how much work you've put in to kind of get to where you are. Well, my first big league
1: call-up was actually quite anticlimactic. Uh, I was in my first year in triple-a in Wichita, Kansas, and they told me. Now, you know, at, at just just to educate, I, I don't know if the rules are much different now, but after three years in the minor leagues, uh, in, which, in which case uh, an organization owns you exclusively, or rights to you, they own the rights to you. Um, after three years, if, they, if you're not on the major league roster, the 40 man roster, 25 of whom are in the big leagues and 15 are in the minors, you become eligible for what they call the rule five draft. If some other team thinks you're big league worthy, they can draft you in the off season and put you on their 40 man roster. So in other words, you're unprotected. So if you were really, if you were really top prospect uh, most organizations would either uh, would, would make sure you are on the 40 man roster by the end of, your third year, or just after the end of your third year, and most of the time back then they were more liberal in calling up players to the big leagues. You know, with the September call-ups back then, they used to call up eight or ten, twelve guys. Now they're they're calling up far fewer, and, and we can get into that why. But but anyway, they said, listen, if you have a good year in A, we expect to call you up and put you on the forty-man roster. So I hit like two eighty, I don't know two eighty. Two eighty something. I had twenty five home runs. I think I had ninety RBIs or something. I thought twenty five. You know, triple A. Yeah. That's, that's pretty good numbers. Yeah. And they didn't call me up. And I was mad.
0: I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, if I had those numbers, I'd be. it wouldn't be a matter of if I'm going to get called up, it's when I'm going to get called well,
1: up. Well, I mean, so, I yeah. knew I wasn't going to get called up before the was expanded on September 1st, which is pretty much right after the minor league season ended. Yeah. So it wasn't a question of when. It was just a question, you know, on that date. I was, you know, But they called up a few other guys from the team, but not me. And I was really upset. And I, and I called them and I let them know. I was upset. I just had to get it off my chest. I, I reminded them what they told me at spring, you know, leaving spring training, and I started driving home uh, from Wichita in my car. and And uh, I was in Kansas City. Uh, yes, I was in Kansas City that the, the next night. And I guess my parent. I guess I had called my parents or something, to tell them where I was, and they said, "Hey, we just got to call up the house from the Expos. They want you to call them right away." So I called them from Kansas city and they said, okay, you convinced us. We changed our mind, you know, get on a flight and come to Montreal. So I left my car in Kansas city. I mean, yeah, my friend had a, my one of my best buddies had to fly out and pick it up or something like that and <laughs> drive it home. But I flew up to Kansas city. I mean, I flew up to Montreal and, uh, and basically uh, sat there, you know, so it's kind of anticlimactic cause it was like, you know, if it had happened right away, it would have been more exciting. I sat there for a whole month from early September to early October, never got in the game, never gotten at a bat. And then on the very last day of that season, um, I pinched it in the seventh inning. I know I hadn't had an at-bat in over a month. It was against Don Robinson, who was a pretty good pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates at the time in, in, um, in three, uh, it was it three river stadium And uh, I followed one pitch off, and then I struck out. But um, I was quite rusty and quite nervous. Yeah, of course. (laughs) But but I remember. But the manager made up some baloney line. He said, you know, I saved – I didn't play you for 33 days because I wanted your first game in the big leagues to be the same day as Willie Stargill's of the Pirates' last day in the big leagues. And I'm like, what?
0: Probably (laughs) just came across that fact like two days before that.
1: (laughs) Oh, that was, yeah. You know, so that was a whole anticlimactic experience, you know, that whole f- first call up in, in months. So I really don't even consider it, even though it was my official first call up and first yeah, at bat. Yeah. It was the next year that, that really kicked that in.
0: Well, just out of curiosity, what was their reasoning for not bringing you up with those statistics? Bat in 280s, 25 Wow. Okay.
1: If they, um, if they, uh, While they were planning to put me on the roster after the season, that extra 30 days of big league service I ended up getting, but they were hoping to avoid me getting, would have made me eligible for arbitration. See, they were assuming I was going to have a successful big league career, and after three full years in the big leagues, you're eligible for arbitration or you're in your third year or something like that, but that 30 days would have made me eligible one year sooner. And they just didn't want that. Yeah. And they were, again, the Expos were a cheap organization, you know, they, you know, what for a lot of, they didn't draw the fans uh, that a lot of American teams did and the devaluation of the dollar, you know, the Canadian dollar wasn't as strong as the American dollar. So for a lot of reasons they, you know, they, they had to be a little more frugal, but that was, that it was, it was, it was money and arbitration. And then they decided, Hey, we better not, piss off one of our better prospects and uh, let's let's get him on up here
0: well that's what's crazy because i mean i've gone to a few expos game when the Sox had series down there and you could pick where you wanted to sit i paid seven dollars for my seat and i probably sat third base side eighth row you know and i'm like you can't get this anywhere i mean this is better than than anything well
1: i gotta uh, tell you and later in in 83 and 84 when i was there the expos were vying for first place yeah. Against the Cardinals and the Phillies and and for those two years they were packing them in. Now you know in nineteen eighty, eighty one, eighty two, they weren't. But in, in those few man, they were really starting to come out and watch watch the expos. And um and it's too bad they didn't win any divisions uh in, in those years. But um they had two chances to really solidify themselves in montreal those few years and the team just didn't perform well and then even when they even had more success in what year was that 94 they were first place and yeah. then they had the strike and the season didn't finish right they had larry walker and marquise chrissom and pedro martinez and all those guys and um they were the, clearly the best team in baseball
0: yeah and then
1: and the season was canceled because of a strike
0: well, that's that, what's crazy.
1: That killed the Expos, right? That killed them. Because then the next year, they couldn't afford to re-sign a, a lot of those guys, and that was it.
0: And, and I feel like at a point, too, even in the 90s, it became Major League Baseball's farm system for all intents and purposes. Yeah, and guys did. like Vlad Guerrero and Jose Vigio and Fernando Tatis and Yagurtha Bean. I mean, and I'm probably missing like, – Orlando Andres, Cabrera. Galarraga. Right. Like, there are so many guys. And you just knew. I mean, you knew. That it was; those guys were gone after a certain amount of years. Randy Johnson, right? I mean, I, as I said, I probably lost left so many off the list, right? But I mean, years of pumping out—I mean, big-time baseball players, Hall of Fame baseball players. I mean, yep. guys that had major, major careers. So, um, yeah, it was a fun experience. I, I probably spent about well, speaking of Hall of Fame. You know, yeah. I did
1: get—I got to play with you know Tim Raines, Andre Dawson, Gary Carter. God rest his soul. And uh, Pete Rose, who should be in the Hall of Fame. Pete was a good friend of mine.
0: Agreed. I played
1: cards with him all the time. Played knock gin with him endlessly. <laughs> For money, of course. He always had a bet.
0: <laughs> uh, so I want to talk about your major league career a little bit more. And yeah. I'm just going to kind of jump through a few phases of it. So there were some things I pulled out of it that I found really interesting. And you alluded to it earlier in the podcast. So this would be a nice connecting. Uh, so you were with the Expos and then you were traded to the to the Twins. And then you sign with the, 80, you know, the 86 with the socks, which I see you got the gear on. And I have a few questions about the 86 socks that we'll get into later. Right. But, but here's statistically something that I pulled out. So your major league career, I have, and I could be a little off number-wise here um, for plate appearances. But I have 493 plate appearances. Here's what I found unbelievable. In those plate appearances, you walked more in your career than you did strikeout. Uh, 2019, I just happened to look up how many people struck out in baseball, how many strikeouts there were in baseball, 42,823 strikeouts. I mean, that's insane. And the amount has gone up over the last 12 years, like yeah. significantly. Yeah. So playing it, you know, hearing you mention earlier that, you know, at one point when you were, I think a junior in the Cape, you were kind of hitting or junior year, you weren't hitting home runs, but you were hitting for average in contact. So I have 71 walks, 66 strikeouts, one hit by pitch, five intentional walks. I mean, talk about, I guess, for young listeners out there, how you mentally went to the plate as a major league baseball player, or just in general, as a baseball player through your stints of how you looked at like dominating a pitch count or dominating, you know, what the first pitch looked like for you. Did you swing? Did you not swing? I mean, how did you mentally kind of approach being a batter at the plate?
1: Wow. Uh, that's a uh, lot to talk about there. Sorry. <laughs> uh, that's all right. Um, first of all, I was, I was a disciple of Ted Williams um, who, who always preached, uh, get a good pitch to hit, especially early in the count.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, don't just swing at a pitch cause it's a strike. If It's not your pitch. Let it go. So I was, uh, I, I love first pitch fastballs if it was in my zone. You know, I I was a very disciplined hitter. I took a lot of pitches, but I didn't go up there thinking I was going to take. I went up there very disciplined. If the ball is in my zone, I'm going to crush the damn thing. But if it's not in my zone, I'm going to wait till the next one. And I might even wait again, right, to do that. Um, Of course, until I got two strikes. So I was very, very disciplined. I had a very good sense of the strike zone too i knew it was a ball i knew it was a strike i could take a close pitch even with two strikes because i knew it was a ball if the umpire was being fair about it <laughs> which they weren't always but um but sometimes it got me in trouble i mean my best manager I ever had was felipe alou you know the great alou brothers oh, yeah. and um felipe was my triple a coach he was also my manager for the two years i played in the dominican republic uh, which was another great experience playing ball there with those great players um and he he thought I was too disciplined. And I'll and if if it's okay, I'll I'll tell you two stories on that. Yeah, absolutely. Felipe. I'll make them short. The first one, uh, he came up to me. Uh he noticed early in my first year at AAA, he managed me both years I was at Wichita in AAA. He noticed that, you know, all of a sudden I wasn't getting guys home with less than third and two outs. He goes, what are you thinking up there when you come up? I said, I'm just trying to hit a I'm just trying to hit a fly ball, you know, to the outfield and get him home. He goes, he, he said, even when the infield is in, I go, yeah, I'm just trying to. He said, you're too good a hitter for that. He said, I want you, if that infield is in, I want you to hit the ball down there effing throats. <laughs> you know, forget the lazy fly ball hit it, be aggressive, stay aggressive and hit it. If they dare come in, you hit it down their throats. Like, wow. And, and I did, you know, I was getting guys home. And then he would, you know, you know, the old hit and run play. It's almost unheard of to do a hit and run with runners on first and second. Cause it's easy. If you miss or it's a bad pitch, you easily throw the guy out at third, but he did it a few times with me because he just wanted me to swing And I can remember one time he put the hit and run on first and second. I had to step back and look again. I go, what? (laughs) And he gave the sign again. All right. So the pitch was probably a pitch low in a way I wouldn't have normally swung at. But I had a swing at it. And wouldn't you know, I hit a double the left center and two runs scored. And I'm going, God, this guy's smart. You know, this guy, this guy knows how to get the most out of me. So, um. So that was my approach, though. So I was very disciplined, maybe at times over-disciplined, but I do think what you mentioned, the walk-to-strikeout ratio, is really the best way outside of the other raw numbers to judge a hitter. Like I was looking at Michael Chavis this spring for the Red Sox.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think he's among the league leaders on average at 285. But he's walked twice and struck out 17 times, two walks and 51 at-bats. That's not a guy who's going to have consistent success. It's just too you're just too volatile. But listen, I know the game has changed. Everyone's trying to get home runs for the big money, so you you take you accept more strikeouts. But you know to be a little more free and bigger swinger. But still, that kind of ratio, you I don't know if you see any player, regular player in the big leagues anymore, who has more walks and strikeouts. Even the little. Slap hitters, even the little leadoff guys are striking out incredible amounts. Uh, I haven't looked at the st- statistics, but I- I'm going to guarantee you there isn't a handful of all of baseball.
0: I mean, that's like all intents and purposes your leadoff batter is supposed to be the guy who puts the bat on the ball more yeah. than anybody, you know, yeah. in, the, in the field of play. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and what, what really stood out to me was even your last year with the Sox, you had an on base percentage of 424. Um, and looking at your average and everything, I mean, you put the ball in play 84% of the time in your career. So you didn't strike out a lot, you walked a decent amount, but you were a pretty good hitter and you put the ball into play. I mean, like you said, those strikeout numbers are astronomical. guy. I mean, 18 strikeouts to two walks. I mean, that ratio doesn't exist in your world, right? But but you, you seeing this and looking at these statistics? I mean, you know, you were a tough out for all intents and purposes in the game of baseball. I mean, guys weren't mowing you down. You know, no, they had. A, they I had mean, to I struck out place. more in the big leagues because listen, I'm going to put some. You know, I, 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 um,
1: you know, I, I can talk to managers and teams that didn't didn't um, afford me the opportunity to play regularly that I thought I deserved, but I, I can say. Uh, before I get back to your question that, you know, that I didn't handle playing part-time very well. I was, uh, I don't know if you can tell from my interview, but I here, but I was a fairly hyper guy. You know, a lot of guys took a uh, speed, you know, what they call greenies because they needed an upper for, I, I needed Valium, you know, I was, <laughs> I was, I was, I was naturally hyped. So, so I, I would, you know, it's like hitting a golf ball. If you try to overswing on a golf ball, you're dead. Right. Well, the right. same thing in baseball, if you try to overswing and get outside of your normal rhythm in baseball, you're dead. And I did, I tried to hit six run home runs all the time, you know, when I went up there, cause I knew I had to do something good if I wanted to be in a lineup again the next day. So, so I didn't handle that well. And I struck out more in the big leagues than I did in the minor leagues. So I was always disappointed about that. But, but having having said that, I see what, what was my original point on that. Um,
0: uh, yeah, we were just talking about how you, you know eighty four percent of the time you put the ball in play. As a, oh yeah, play. oh yeah.
1: But I wanted to go back to the uh, Red Sox uh, story. So when I was gotcha. with the Red Sox, again I had a couple starts, a bunch of pinch hits. I was two for twenty one. Yeah, you know, I just couldn't get in a groove, hit a few balls hard right at people. You know, you get two more hits out of those, you're hitting 250, you know, or something right. like that. But anyway, I was two for 21. So, I, so when I was sent down that, that year in lieu of Mike Greenwell, another lefty hitter, I had the lowest batting average on the team. This is in the big leagues now. But I had the highest on base percentage on the team because I had 13 walks. Yeah, and I had a look at that twice. I
0: was like, wait, and it was what? true. Yeah,
1: yeah. True, I had like a 436 or something on base. Oh ninety one average, 436 on base. I mean, that's unheard of, you know, kind right. of stuff. So, and Earl Weaver said, and but there were some teams that appreciated that. When Earl Weaver, that was in the paper, heard that I got sent down, he goes, send him down? Hell, that guy would be batting leadoff for me. Wow. You yeah. know, like you said earlier, you know. Getting on base has value. And, and look, look, look what happened. Moneyball would come by 10 years later, right? I was, I was 10 years too early, <laughs> <laughs> 10 years ahead of the time, uh, Anthony. And, uh, and also, I played in the wrong league. You know, the National League in the 80s was an AstroTurf League. Yeah. And they wanted the fast outfielder type, you know, Willie McGee type players. You know, Tim Raines got kind of guys. And, I, I, that's you know, I was, I was a grass player. You know, so I was the wrong time and wrong uh, wrong field type.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, numbers don't lie. At the end of the day, you know, the, it, it's a, that's an impressive stat. I mean, that's like a quarterback, you know, having a low pers- completion percentage, but the most touchdowns in the league. I mean, you know, it, it's somewhat a similar type stat for sure. Um So this next round of things that I want to talk about is just me being a fan and just like curious about the way some things were uh, in the game of baseball. So the one thing that I want to bring up to you and you're wearing the gear is playing for the '86 Sox. I mean, you played. I mean, you talked about the squad that you played with in Montreal. I mean, <laughs> the '86 Sox were a squad in themselves. I mean, all stars, Hall of Famers. I mean, legendary players. I mean, and obviously, we know how their season ended. Tough, you know, tough luck in Game Six, and then losing Game Seven. I mean, you play with those guys. You knew those guys. I mean, talk about that '86 team a little bit and what you maybe learned as a baseball player even if it was a short stint playing for that organization and playing for that team, that was a game away from winning the world series. It was a very, it was my hometown team. I'm wearing the stuff today. Um,
1: but it was a very difficult and bitter. I wouldn't even say bittersweet. Just, it was kind of a, you know, if you really want to look at it, it was honored to be able to play for my hometown team, but it was really a bitter experience for me. Um, I was I was signed I was told things in spring training I led the team in hitting in spring training I despite uh, hitting instructor uh, Walt Raniak who was the exact opposite of my Ted Williams style hitting style who tried to change me halfway through spring training I had to basically tell him screw you I, I gotta go back to the way I know how to hit and I just got on fire and they still didn't put me on the opening day roster. So I went down to Pawtucket, uh, got off to a pretty good start. They called me up in late May, told me I would be, you know, probably see some regular time because I played all the positions where guys needed rest. You know, Bill Buckner with his bad ankles at first base, you know, Jim Rice was getting older in his years and Dwight in left field. I played there and Dwight Evans in right field and Tony Armis, DH, you know, know, so he said, you know, these are all veterans who need some time off and you'll be, you know, hopefully playing. Well, that didn't come true. Not only did they never give those guys any time off, but when they did, they, they put somebody else in McNamara just didn't for what John McNamara who passed away this year, God rest his soul, just didn't, didn't have apparently a lot of confidence, but again, I, I was kind of, you know, uh, I must say lied to, but I was, you know, but they didn't, they didn't fulfill what they told me. Then they sent me down before the September. They didn't call me back up for the last month. And the worst of it all was, um, the players broke every tradition and precedent in baseball when it came to voting, uh, playoff and post, you know, post shares. I had just gotten married. My wife and I, good thing we waited. We were planning to build a house in Rhode Island. And because um, we were expecting a pretty decent payday for spending, you know, a third to 40%. I, I spent 33, 40% of the year in Boston. So expecting at the worst, I'd get a half a share. Maybe if I was lucky, they'd give, give you a full share. Well, I ended up getting one 30th of a share. Wow. They decided that year, against all precedent, to give guys, even though they were there on the team, you know, McNamara just like I said, he played the same nine guys every day. Yeah. And there were a lot of guys like me, Rob Woodward, uh, uh, Ray Keonis, the shortstop, you know, guys who weren't there the whole year. And 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 honestly, my it really was hurtful that your own teammates would screw you. Yeah. It's amazing.
0: I mean, you just
1: so instead of getting like thirty-five thousand dollars, I got like three thousand dollars.
0: Right. Yeah. And it just seems like from the stories that you're telling, baseball is just such a numbers game in that sense of why they don't bring you up, to why they keep you down, to why they bring you down. It's all about money and arbitrage. I mean, it's it's wild. I mean, well, it's, it's one a whole thing for the organization
1: game. to do that, but this was the players. This right.
0: Be- and now you're yeah, like you're hearing it from MLB. Yep. I mean, your union for all intents and purposes, what you guys negotiate and fight for. You know, here you are and guys are kind of doing, you know, shady things behind each other's backs a little bit or right out in the open in front of people. So the attitude
1: was, hey, you know, we're the guys that carried all the weight. So why should we give those guys any money? They just sat
0: on the bench. Well, it wasn't by my choice. Right. I mean, it's not like you (laughs) wanted to do that. Um I got to ask you this. I mean, how does it feel to get plunked in a major league game? You know, 90, 90 plus mile an hour of fastball. I mean, I feel like I dropped to the ground. And I'd be in pain for 20 minutes. Guys walk off like it's nothing. I mean, talk about getting plunked. I mean, how does it feel? Uh, we didn't have
1: the protective gear they have today. Yeah. You know, we didn't have uh, – uh, we, we, we did have a, a, a s- single flap we had to wear. Um, but uh, we didn't have the arms and the legs. I mean, I twice got broke, you know, in the Cape – Cape Cod League, after I got off to that hot start, a pitcher literally threw up my head because he was mad at me for hitting a home run off him. And I put my hand up, my right hand with my bat, and it hit me there, and I broke the third and fourth metacarpals. And then similarly, in spring training in my second year of pro ball um, with the Expos, and bat, it, was just, it was just a simulated game in spring training, and, and a pitcher, a ball got away from me. He wasn't trying to hit me. and was, Same thing, I put my arm up and hit me right here, and I broke my wrist bone. So I missed the first month of the '81 season.
0: Yeah, uh, how much? Did, how much did that happen in baseball? Like, I mean, let's say you know, that guys throwing at you. Okay, okay. I mean, I mean, listen, guys got plunked. I'm, yeah. I'm talking
1: about guys suffering a injury that you know break. I mean, again, today they've got padded batting yeah. gloves. All, you know, we didn't have any of that that stuff back then. So, but I've been hitting the head. I've been hitting the back and the butt and the leg. I mean, you know. Today, guys get all upset and they want to start fights and riots over it all. I mean, right. we just accepted it as part of the game back then.
0: I mean, that's what it was, right? I mean, back then, for all intents and purposes, if a guy threw at you, it was for a reason, and you weren't necessarily charging them out and retaliating. You were kind of taking it, knowing that one of your teammates is probably going to get you back an inning or two from now, you know? Well, listen,
1: Anthony, in today's culture, everything offends everybody. Yeah. So
0: I, yeah. Uh, I, guess getting, <laughs> yeah.
1: Getting, I guess getting thrown at should be no no exception. But back then, it was a different culture it was a different time and you know whatever you know yeah Yeah.
0: and and so just kind of talking about and i just have you know you mentioned it earlier, Louis, this is a coaching. You know, typically, I have a lot of coaches on from the high school, college, and professional level. And you mentioned some of your coaches in the past. I mean, talk about a major league baseball coach, the type of demeanor they had back then. I mean, obviously, they're pretty knowledgeable in the game. And you've had a lot of different coaches and a lot of different leagues and a lot of different schools. And, um, you know, what's, 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 what's the uh, mentality of, of a baseball coach in general, the ones that you've come across as far as coaching and building a squad and a roster and so on and so forth?
1: well i would i would say that i had probably three of the worst major league managers in the history <laughs> of the game Yeah, you know, with the expos bill verdon was just a who, who was really the guy that was there during my formative time um was really just a uh, never you know didn't communicate at all didn't smile at all just had to play the tough guy role all the time and Especially to, to us rookies you know or younger guys, so I had to play the hard ass to us and and then uh the twins I, I would have had a great manager, the guy that traded for me, Billy Gardner Connecticut guy, and then he got fired a month into the season, and the guy that came after him, Ray Miller, was just the, one of the biggest assholes that we ever met in our life and yeah and um that and then John McNamara, you know with the red sox was was just um it was just a guy sitting on the bench who did nothing but fill out a lineup card. You know, he put the same nine, same nine guys in there every day and rotated the pitchers, and, and that was about it. You know, he didn't, again, no, no, no communication with younger guys like me. You know, I mean, it's, it's very different. you look at a guy like Terry Francona and, you know, Terry Francona was my roommate, you know, with the Expos wow. in double A in 1981 in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, was a dear, dear friend of mine. And, and, uh, he was clearly a player's manager, communicated and, and look, you know he won he won, a, he won the first world championship for the Red Sox in 100 years. Yeah. So you know so so it, it's you know those guys were the end of that era of of old school disciplinarian you know non you know non-players managers. You know, pretty much today you've got to be a player's manager. So it was again, really different when I played, I think, compared to what you see today.
0: Yeah. And and that's it. I feel like, and this is not knock on coaches that coached 20, 30, 40 years ago, but just the game of coaching today, it's it, a lot of it's compassion. I mean, you have to be a pretty compassionate, understanding person nowadays because, you know, major league managers, like you mentioned in different sports, whether it's baseball or other sports, like they got farm guys, they're looking at, they got scouts all over the world, scouting guys. I mean, you got to know your roster in and out and understand the ins and outs. And now more than ever, it's a business, you know, people, you know, your players are more concerned about the final financial side and the commercials of things and advertising themselves and you got i mean phil jackson you know he's one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time but i would argue that he's also one of the greatest manager of egos ever you know ever with the egos well see but but
1: what you just said is true he probably managed the egos by communicating with the players right you're not just not saying anything now compassionate i don't know if i'd agree with that term but communicative compassionate uh-huh. in the sense you have to understand what your players are going through and sometimes you have to give them hard love. Sometimes you gotta tell them things they don't want to hear necessarily, but it's for their own good. But at least you tell them and then you explain it to them. Okay, so this is the deal and this is why. Rather than just sit there and say nothing. Right. Which is what most of these managers did. They said nothing to you. You yeah. had no idea what they thought of you. You had no idea if they if they understood anything about us. So so again, compassion it means maybe giving in to a player. Because, a player's manager today doesn't mean you're giving into them because you can't give in to anybody. You only play nine guys at a time. Right. But it means communicating with everybody. So at least as adults, we understand where we're coming from each other. Right. That, that can,
0: the unknown is a lot worse than the known. Trust me. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, obviously, like I mentioned to you before, this is typically a coaching show. We do, you know, we have a lot of coaches on here. But let me just ask you this. What would be your advice to young players out there, young baseball players that have a pretty good high school career, that might be getting some college looks? I mean, what would be your advice to someone who's gone through this process like you have that you would give a player or a kid today as they're about to take that step into it?
1: Play two sports, at least. I love it. Don't focus it. everything on your preferred sport. You need to be. You need to be. Overall athletic skills are far more important than developed sport-specific skills. And you can only develop so much before you burn out. You know, we mentioned AAU a little earlier, and you know, I, I think I think this AAU stuff is not good for a lot of players. That the year-round training, the year-round competition. There is no question in my mind. That being a two-sport athlete and playing basketball helped my big league career both in terms of being in better shape having other you know other dexterity skills developed that that somehow translate into baseball and other sports and the one year I didn't play basketball my junior year in college when I left basketball was I ended up having my worst baseball season of my career so uh, you know might have just been coincidence it might not but Play two sports, and that just goes to a a larger issue of be well-rounded and versatile as a person. Uh, Make sure you study. Make sure you put family and God first and country. I'm a patriot. Um, Work your butt off in your sport, but work your butt off in everything you do. And you got to stay away from the... um, Got to stay away from the temptations. You know, there's the sacrifices. Yeah, they're not really sacrifices. I mean, you know, oh, I sacrificed drinking or girls to have. I mean, you don't have to right. sacrifice anything. I mean, you know, it's, and it's not a sacrifice not to go out and get drunk every night. You know, that's, that's just smart,
0: right? Yeah, to pursue your dream, right? Yeah, like I, stuff that's you, not a right. sacrifice. <laughs> right. Know? Absolutely. So,
1: so don't think of it that way. Focus your energy on what's important to you and what's important to your family. And, um, and, and, and again, from an athletic point of view, play multiple sports. I, I know that's not the thing. I know AAU and, and all those other pressures are telling you not to, and I don't even know if it's possible, Anthony. You, you would know better than me. I don't even know if in today's culture it's possible to be an elite athlete and not be in one of these year-round single-sport disciplines is, let me ask you. Is, I mean, there, it, it, I'm seeing
0: it starting event? to happen. I'm seeing it start to happen more. You know, as a football coach, I always encourage my players, and I feel like that's the one sport, at least in this area, that. Outside of maybe seven-on-sevens in the spring or in the summer, there's really not much else that's offered. But I have had so many kids, I tell you that, you know, I'm not going to play because I'm going to focus on being a hockey player. I'm going to focus on my basketball game. And then you see a few years down the road, maybe their high school career didn't turn out the way that they were hoping to by focusing on that one sport. And then the college offers or the college game that they thought they were going to be playing, maybe as sophomores in high school, doesn't come true. I'm with you on that. To me, like but is it I even feasible play- for a young kid to be allowed to play two sports by by
1: some dictatorial AAU coach or high school coach or something like that? Is it even
0: feasible today? I, I think it's happening more. I haven't personally experienced it. I'll say that. I haven't personally experienced a kid not playing anymore because you know he's paying this coach in the AU League all this money and they're telling him how wonderful they are and play for us and we <laughs> can help you. I've never faced that but i've heard it a lot i i hear it a lot in the high school world so you're right it, the, there is an aspect of you, know, you might have a kid who's a really good basketball player but he's a heck of a wide receiver too and you know and you lose him as a wide receiver because basketball is a year-round sport and there's a million different leagues out there for it and you know you, you don't have the opportunity to have that same thing in football so a lot of kids end up choosing that other sport but it happens it i agree with you it happens a lot um I haven't experienced it, but it happens. I know it does for sure. Okay. Um, and, and that's it. So, you know, I, before, we, before we close out here, uh, Mike, we have a, a segment of the show called the two-minute drill. Uh, and our two-minute drill is just rapid-fire questions, you know, one or two-word answers. I'll set a timer. Um, I do get a booth review. If I want you to explain something a little bit more, I'll throw the flag and vice versa. If you want to explain something <laughs> a little bit more, I'll allow you to throw the flag as well. So let me get the timer set. And here we go. Who's the best major league baseball player you ever played with? Kirby Pocket. Oh, that's a great answer. The famous run across – oh, God, is that catching the outfield? He oh. <laughs> did it all the time. I love – that's a great answer. Um, what would you say was your uh, favorite ballpark to play at in the major leagues? Wrigley Field. Awesome, um, who was the best batter? I got to. Ever-
1: well, not only is it a cool place, but it's where my dad became that first rookie pitcher to start a major league all star game. That's where. Oh it
0: wow! So really? For that reason too, yeah. Okay, that's awesome. All so right. I throw the flag. Got a. Like- all right, hey, listen, that's great. That's great. Let me start the timer back up. Who was the best offensive player? I mean, excuse me, defensive player you've ever played with? With. Or, or just in general, maybe played against. I'll, I'll open it wide open. Well, I, well against
1: Ozzy Smith, the Wizard at Shortstop, of course. And with, I would say, Andre Dawson.
0: Awesome. Where was your first Major League home run?
1: In Montreal off of Andy Hawkins and the San Diego Padres.
0: What would you say was the biggest hit in your career at any point that you remember? I'm going to say
1: it was a walk. My only RBI with the Red Sox – I have to throw the flag. My only RBI with the Red Sox was bases loaded, pinch hit in Toronto against the Blue Jays where, you know, battling for first. uh, One out, bottom of the eighth, tie game – and top of the ninth, excuse me, tie game and Marty Barrett's facing a funky right-handed pitcher named Mark Eichhorn. And, of course, John McNamara wasn't smart enough to know that Marty Barrett couldn't hit the guy. So Marty went to McNamara and said, Mac, I can't hit this guy. Put in Steny. You know, that was my nickname, Steny. Put in Steny or somebody to hit for me. So I was very patient. I ripped a few. He, he was a slow change-up pitcher. I hit a few balls, foul. hit him hard. I, in fact, I sent a fan to the hospital. But I ended up taking a 3-2 pitch really close, but it was just down and away. And I walked home uh, the winning run that game and my only RBI of that season.
0: <laughs> I love it. That's, you know what's funny? I played in a softball league, and one of the team's names was the Sons of Marty Barrett. That was their softball <laughs> team name. So Marty I, I haven't person. heard that name in, since And since then. <laughs> I, let me
1: say this for the record. Marty was not one of those guys who voted to screw his fellow teammates. Marty was one of the guys who supported us.
0: That's great. That's great. Last question. Have you ever batted against your dad before? And if so, what was the result?
1: Uh, not in any meaningful way. Just, I mean, millions and millions of batting practice pitches. Yeah. I, I probably hit thousands of home runs off. Them. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right, coach. I, all right. You survived the two minute drill. Uh, I appreciate you coming on here today. Honestly, it was a true honor, Mike. Like, just listening to your stories and what you've been through and what you learned. And, you know, to my, my favorite part is just how you got the education, right? Because throughout your stories of talking, it just came back to hearing what other guys were going through. And, you know, when their major league career ended, it was kind of that question mark. And I know for you, you jumped into the broadcasting world life after major league baseball a little bit, and maybe we can kind of end on a note there. I mean, Talk about seeing the game from the other side of, of, of baseball. I mean, here you are as a player, dugouts, playing all over the place, all over the country, all different teams, but now kind of seeing the game as someone who spectates it and, and calls it.
1: You know, I never officially coached baseball, uh, not even Little League with my kids. Uh, so being able to talk about it as a broadcaster was a great thrill for me and a way to stay connected to the game. Yeah, uh, I I started with the Pawtucket Red Sox, their very first uh, broadcast on Nesson in 1988, the year after I, uh, my last year as a, as a player with the Tigers minor leagues in '87. I I was with Nesson in the Pawtucket Red Sox for 12 years. For the last um, three years of that time, I also hopped back and forth. I did two years of radio. And one year of radio and TV, but all on a part time with the Montreal Expo. So I even got to broadcast as a radio and and doing play by play is a hell of a lot harder than doing color commentating, which is what I did with the Red Sox. But, But when I did radio for the Expo, I actually had to do play by play for a few innings a game. And that was, that was interesting. And so I had to learn a whole new set of skills there, but, but being able to stay connected to the game and talk about it and share experience, because you could tell stories when you're broadcasting and all that was really a great thrill for me. And, and, uh, and, and it was really a really great part of my baseball career.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. I, I loved it. And I saw how long you did it. I was like, Oh, he must have been so good at it, just because you had so much experience in the game. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm learning things as I do this, too. I mean, I have zero training in it. And, you know, sometimes I rewatch myself, and I realize I make a mistake. And sometimes that's the only way you learn is from the mistakes that you make and get right. better at it. Um, and the last thing I just want to talk about, I know we didn't jump into it, but I'd love to just hear a little bit more about it. At the top of the broadcast, we mentioned, you know, founder and CEO of the Rhode Island Center of Freedom and Prosperity. Just wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe talk about what you're into a little bit right now and um yeah we'll end the podcast on that well I guess I
1: guess if I guess if you would say I had like we were talking earlier you know again I didn't like the word sacrifice but I had great resolve right to work hard to uh, develop uh, mentally and physically emotionally to become a major league player work really hard i have to tell you after 10 years at, at the Rhode Island Center for Freedom and Prosperity I you know, if you can imagine, you know, we are the state's only conservative think tank in a very blue liberal progressive state. And to be able to stay afloat and attract donors as a nonprofit for for ten years, it took it it takes a lot of resolve. We don't we don't we don't achieve many victories. I mean, we are a last place team. Yeah. <laughs> Almost winless in some years. <laughs> But yet I, I stick with it out of principle because I believe in what our mission is. So, so uh, you know, and I, I get some, um, I get a chance to bloviate on, on the air. I Like you, I have uh, three times a week I do a one-hour uh, video blog now talking about issues, which we started last year. So, um, so yeah, so, so that's what we do. But we certainly face an uphill battle in this state.
0: Yeah, well, listen, I I think you're great. I I, I loved ha- having, like I said, having you on here and just learning a lot about you. And uh, funny guy, man, you're a funny guy. So, um, I I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It means a lot that you took a time out of your busy schedule to do this. And you know, this little ring ding podcast that I'm starting to build up, and you know, having guests like you is is what's going to make this better. So I really, well, appreciate you're
1: doing that. a great job. I can tell you as a former professional broadcaster to another guy who's going to be a professional podcaster you're doing a great job you ask great insightful you do your homework and uh for any of your fans out there listening uh keep tuning in to anthony because i know he's gonna only get bigger and better and if i can help you secure any guests uh let let me know
0: okay yeah absolutely i appreciate that thank you so much that means a lot to me thank you so from beyond Podcast, i'm your host anthony petrellis mike stenhouse till next time guys thank you Beyond X's and O's, X's and O's, X's and O's, this is more than just a game.